Well, this morning we continue through our series on the gospel according to John. We wrap up the second half of chapter 3. Last week in the first half of chapter 3, we saw a highly religious man, Nicodemus. He came at night to question Jesus, and you had you know, the John 3.16 um, encounter. That was a conversation with Nicodemus. Well, in the second half of chapter 3, we continue to see more and more people like desiring to follow Jesus. But this was met with a lot of opposition, some with the Pharisees. But in this part of chapter 3, we're going to see the popularity of Jesus. It begins to make some of John the Baptist, his, some of his disciples become really jealous. And so when these disciples approach John with their concerns, John's response is probably not what the disciples had in mind. So let's look at this interaction together in John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. God, we, um, we come this morning just trusting that your word is at work in our lives, that your spirit is, is drawing, wooing people to you. And I pray this morning you give us ears to, to hear that we, would, that we would get out of the way, that we would... Um, that we would decrease, that we would make much of Christ, that he would increase, and that we would decrease. Lord, may that be our focus. Lord, I pray that you would give us insight to this passage, give us insight to our hearts. Lord, be gracious to show us our sin. Lord, help us to confess and repent and trust in you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So this encounter with John the Baptist, it's, it's wedged right in between two of the most famous interactions in John's gospel. 
So last week we had Nicodemus, the John 3.16 passage, being born again. You have Nicodemus, this famous, powerful religious leader. Next week, chapter 4, we will encounter the woman at the well. So right between Nicodemus, woman at the well, you have this encounter with John the Baptist. And this is, this is the last time that we will see John the Baptist actually in John's gospel, which I think is so fitting knowing his personality. Um, as we see in this chapter, John doesn't want to be the one in the spotlight. He doesn't mind being in the spotlight when he's pointing people to, to Christ, but he doesn't want a big to-do. You know, if he's having a retirement party, you know, he just wants to kind of slip out, not be celebrated much. He wants to point people to Christ. He wants to be the light that's shining onto the light is what he wants to be. Maybe you're new to the Bible. The author, John, is not the same person as John the Baptist that we're talking about here. The author, John, in passing, he he gives us a quick spoiler um, about John's life. In verse 24, he makes this parenthetical statement, for John had not yet been put in prison. So we know that this is going to happen. Um, At some point in John's future, he's thrown into prison. We learn from Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, that he would be thrown in for speaking out against King Herod's marriage. Uh, The king had married his brother's wife while his brother was still alive, and John called him out on it. And uh, John was um, thrown into prison. Ultimately, John would be beheaded. At this point in John's gospel, John the Baptist had become pretty famous. I mean, if if you were anyone in Israel, you knew who this crazy, unique guy John the Baptist was. At this point, his fame was arguably even more so than um, the fame of Christ. But the fame of Christ was catching up to the fame of John the Baptist. We'd seen back in chapter 1 where some of John's disciples had left John to follow Jesus. Um, And so this couldn't have been, this is chapter 3, this couldn't have been that long ago since that moment. Verse 22 starts out with this indefinite time of after this. So we don't know how long after the conversation with Nicodemus, that conversation, that encounter happened from that point to verse 22, but after this could have been a few days, a few weeks, maybe a few months, but it, it would have been at least where... These guys who left John back in John chapter 1 and now following Jesus, some of these disciples now in chapter 3 would have known about them leaving in chapter 1 and they would have known each other. And so now we see John's disciples getting jealous by the rising fame of Jesus. People have been gathering, coming from afar to hear John's preaching, to have John baptize them, and now there's someone new on the scene. Someone else getting attention. There's this hype. There's a buzz about this Jesus of Nazareth. Crowds were growing. Interest in this man was growing. Word was getting out about this Jesus from Nazareth who could do signs. You know, John was cool, kind of unique, but here comes this guy who could do signs. We all want to see the signs, don't we? So Jesus and his disciples, they're they're attracting attention, uh, which means that some of those who have been following John are now leaving John's little flock and begin to follow Jesus. So people leaving for the newer, the bigger, the better thing, it happens all the time, right? 
We see it in sports. In sports, we call it um, just jumping on the bandwagon. You know, there's this new, new athlete, new team, got a lot of buzz, a lot of hype. Everybody wants to be a part of that. It's cool. It's new. But it's not just with sports that happens with churches, too. A new church comes into town. They have a bigger band, bigger kids' ministry, better preaching. Not going to take much here, but fog machines, cool lights. People leave their church and go to that new cool church. Happens all the time. See, one of the problems with this type of mindset, especially in church, is that there's always going to be something newer, bigger, better, flashier to get your attention. What I've learned in, in, in church life is what attracts someone to church um, is ultimately how you keep them. I was talking, at, I mentioned I was at a church planners conference this week. I was talking to one of, one of the guys I'm friends with, and he's telling me he was in another, another state doing ministry several years ago. And, um, and I basically just, I mean, it was conversation started asking how Easter went, and he said, oh, it was good. We had some people over after church. Again, they're a church plan. They have maybe 30 people. So they had some people over from the church to their house for Easter uh, supper. And, uh, and, and he said, and then, you know, I was joking about their, you know, did they not do an Easter cantata or an Easter egg hunt? And he said, man, he said, when I was at, in another town, another state, there was this church there that, um, that they would do for, for Easter. They would do this big Easter egg hunt. And, and they, would, they would have this helicopter just come in and drop the eggs out. And like, oh, yeah, like that, that's it. And so you can imagine how, how, you know, all the kids like, you know, that's the coolest thing ever. Um, but what's amazing, though, I, I bet you anything that like three, four years into the helicopter dropping off the eggs, those kids are like, oh, helicopter. You know, how lame. Like we've, we've been there, done that. That's so like five years ago. And it's just like what you win them with is what you win them to. And so there is something, or in this case, someone new in town. John's disciples are really concerned that more of John's disciples are going to leave their little holy huddle and begin to join this other man's group. So starting in verse 22, let's see how John the Baptist handles his disciples' concerns. Let's see if they're really concerns for John the Baptist. So verse 22, after this, Jesus and disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Well, we see in the very next chapter, we'll see this next week. You can look down if you have a Bible in front of you. In, in John 4, verse 2, um, it says that Jesus wasn't actually the one baptizing. It was just his, actually, it was his disciples who were baptizing. But here we see that People are being baptized by Jesus' disciples. In verse 23, John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So in these first few verses here, we see like the author, John, establishing this contrast, this apparent uh, rivalry between Jesus and his disciples in verse 22, set up against John and his disciples in verse 23. 
Jesus and the disciples were baptizing, and John also was baptizing. So they're like, okay, what's going on here? And this big, you know, kind of like snap and walking to each other, like, what's going on? Who are you following? Jesus or John here? Two alphas, each with their own following. And so this sounds like potential conflict, a potential rivalry. And there had been rivalries all throughout Scripture, right? You can think of some, Cain and Abel, Jacob, Esau, David, Saul, but this is not one of them. See, rivalries only happen when both parties agree that it's a rivalry. Just because one party thinks it's a rivalry doesn't mean it's one. And I hate using this example, but, but it's true, and I think it illustrates the point, so I will regretfully use it. Uh, if you were to ask a Marshall fan like myself who their greatest rivalry would be, um, without a doubt, everyone would say, Mountaineers, WU. Olivia and I, when we see our kids come downstairs wearing something that just happens to be blue and gold, we don't have any Mountaineer gear, apparel, in our house. But if it's just blue and gold, we go, oh, what are you doing? Go back upstairs right now and change, okay? But if you were to go to Morgantown and ask a W fan, or probably some of you snuck in this morning, who their rival would be, they would go through a long list of schools before ever, if ever, getting to Marshall. W does not look at Marshall as a threat. John the Baptist does not see Jesus and his followers as a threat. In fact, John will be the one, and he has been. He's, he's, promoting, he's promoting Jesus, John is. John came, you remember in chapter 1, he came to be a witness about the light. In verse 26, John's disciples had seen enough, so they come to John. They express their concern. They say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. I love how they say all. Everybody's going. Everybody's leaving us. See, during moments of conflict, what I've noticed is we have a tendency to exaggerate, don't we? I see this all the time, you know, in marriage counseling, you'll hear, just hear language like, oh, he's always late, or she never keeps her word, he never helps with the kids. Exaggeration is rarely um, fair. You know, like, he's always late, like, okay, was he late for your wedding? Well, well, no, of course not. Well, then you can't say that he's always late, he's at least on time for that one thing. So, you know, it's, it's not, you're not being truthful when you say He's always late or she's always late. John's disciples, you notice here, all are going to him. Well, this is just not true. We just read in verse 23 that John was also baptizing people at Enon. And people were coming and, and being baptized. Did the people that, that John baptized did not count to these other disciples? Were they not good enough or the right kind of people for John's disciples to consider? All are going to him. The truth is, John's disciples were jealous, and when someone is jealous, enough will never be enough. John's disciples, they were losing popularity. Their influence was becoming smaller. They used to be big fish. Now they're becoming a little bit smaller fish. They're not as important as they used to be, and now we see their emotions coming out. 
These disciples are creating an us versus them mentality. They're trying to set up Team John versus Team Jesus. But John, as we see, is having no part in this. Divisions happen when we lose focus of the big picture. Divisions happen when the church loses focus on whose kingdom they are part of. See, John's, John's disciples, they're focused on their kingdom. Like, hey, look what's going on here. This is cool. Look what we're part of. They liked it when their kingdom was the biggest. If you remember, we saw this type of attitude when we went through um, 1 Corinthians. In the church at Corinth, um, we, we saw that this was a church that had lost its focus. Paul, the author of 1 Corinthians, he, he rebukes them. Um, this was a church that rather than focusing on the kingdom of God, that they began to um, focus on who was their greatest and favorite leader in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united, the same mind, the same judgment. Then a couple chapters later in chapter 3, he says in verse 1, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He said, you, you're acting like a bunch of babies. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are, are, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. See, Paul was not going to put up with this type of self-centered, me-first behavior in the Corinthian church. And here we see John doing the same thing. John's like, I'm not having it. Like, my whole life is devoted to this man, Jesus. If anything, I want you to leave me and go follow him. It would be better for you. So John answers in verse 27. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He was the one coming to prepare the way of the Lord. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So if you remember back in chapter 1, when we were first introduced to John the Baptist, there were some Jews who were sent out to find out who this unique guy was. He was baptizing everybody. People were coming to him in flocks to hear his preaching. And when these Jews got to John the Baptist. They, they, they said, who are you? People want to know, who are you? You remember how he answered? 
He started by telling them who he was not. He said, I am not the Christ. You usually don't answer the question of who you are by answering who you are not. John's aim was to take the focus and attention completely off himself and put it on Jesus. Sadly, so much of what happens in church today is about drawing people to ourselves. Sometimes the church can be better at making church followers or followers of a pastor rather than Christ followers. And this can be really obvious once the pastor leaves. If a bunch of people leave after a charismatic pastor leaves, then there is a very good chance that that pastor was simply drawing people to himself. And you'll see this. You'll see this when... Pastors leave, sometimes churches struggle. It's because everybody was just focused on, on him. There wasn't, wasn't about the church. It wasn't about Christ. It seems like John could care less about having followers. I mean, he's already given Jesus some of them. He said, yeah, there he is. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they're like, all right, I'm out. I'm following him. See you later. His goal was to point people to Jesus. So every disciple who leaves John and follows Jesus is doing just what John had instructed them to do. It seems like John wants to get out of the way. He informs his disciples that he is not the groom. And I, I love this metaphor here. Have you ever been to a wedding and, and noticed where the best man or the maid of honor <laughs> Maybe they wanted to be a little bit more important than what their role led them to be that day. Have you ever noticed that? It's so awkward just to watch this unfold. You just feel bad for them. Um, you just want to go up to them and remind them that, hey, like, today's not really about you, okay? See, the best man's job, which is what John is likening himself to here, he is to make sure that the bride and groom, that they get all the attention. You know, no one should ever leave a wedding and be discussing the groomsmen and the bridesmaids. Have you ever done that in the car you know, on the way home? John's point is that Jesus is the groom. And here comes his bride. And I, and I love that John is setting us up here for a lot of New Testament language here of Jesus being the groom, the church being the bride. Christ has come for his bride. And John is just saying, hey, look, get your eyes off of me. There's a wedding happening right now. Look to the groom. John doesn't want people to ignore the groom and focus on him. John's aim was not to achieve worldly fame or recognition. His purpose was to bring glory to Jesus. That's so hard for a lot of us, isn't it? We love attention. We like the pat on the back. We like affirmation. And, and John's just like, I just want to get out of the way. And I love how John doesn't mind being up in the front doing things when he, when he needed to be. But once the groom comes, he's like, all right, I'm out. And he's fine being in the back. We see, we see this kind of attitude in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. How hard that must have been for those disciples to hear that. 
Wait, what? You want to make more of him? And you want to be made less? Yeah, that's right. It's better for everybody if that happens. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a beautiful verse. This should be our goal every day we wake up. Lord, how can I make much of you today? How can I increase your fame? And how can I just get out of the way? How can I point people? How can I be a witness for you today? Point people to you. I don't want people to see me. I don't want to get the the praise, the fame. How can I just reflect that and give that to you? John lived so that the fame of Christ might increase. His life was not about himself. John's life goal was to be a witness about the light. And these were not just words full of uh, religiosity. He, he actually lived this out. Do you remember back in chapter 1 when, when John was standing there, two of his disciples, um, John looked, there's Jesus. Jesus walked by, and John said, look, behold, the Lamb of God. Two of John's disciples heard, heard him say this, and they just began to follow Jesus. In that moment, John doesn't get upset. He doesn't pout. John had laid down his life. He set aside all his worldly aspirations in order to prepare the way for the Lord. What would this look like in your life? What would it look like if you just got out of the way? What if we stopped elevating and promoting ourselves and we began to simply promote the ministry of Jesus? What if our goal wasn't to impress others, receive praise. He must increase and I must decrease. Verse 31, John continues to educate his disciples about this man, Jesus. He says to them in verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So John informs his disciples that Jesus should be the one that they follow. He is above all. See, John's point is that he is born from a human mom and a human dad. But Jesus is not like any other human because he has no earthly father. John is saying, I am not going to lay down my life for you. Even if I did, the only purpose it would serve is just to show you an act of love. It would not remove your sins. You would still need to be atoned for. But Christ is going to come and die for your sins on your behalf. John's saying, I can't do that. I'm not God. He is. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Being above all means means he's being above all the natural realm. You know, we saw two weeks ago when Jesus turned the molecular structure of water into wine without even touching it, without allowing time to elapse. He just spoke it, and it happened. In chapter 9, it's one of, the most, one of the coolest signs we see. Jesus heals a blind man who had been blind from birth. And so once this happened, the Pharisees heard about it. They were really skeptical about this man's healing. They thought he was lying about being born blind. They thought maybe he was just trying to stir up a crowd and this hype about Jesus. 
So they went, they questioned the man's parents, and the parents said, no, this is actually true. And so they realized this guy was telling the truth. And in chapter 9, the Pharisees told the man, they said, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Then the blind man answered, he said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, that I was blind and now I see. So he's just, I don't know who he is, but I know who I am. And I used to be blind and now I'm not. So this guy's something special. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? The blind man answered, well, formerly blind man answered, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? It's like shots fired. And they get a little upset when he says this. He said, they revouted him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So here comes the point. This is how this passage connects with John's point. The man answered, why is this an amazing thing? You do not know where he comes from? Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. See, with all Jesus has said and done, it's absurd to think that he's from earth, that he's just some dude, some God. Jesus has to be from heaven. The blind man had absolutely no problem believing that Jesus came from heaven. So John is saying to his disciples here, Jesus cannot be of the earth. And then in verse 32, he continues this line of thinking. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, God has given everything into the hands of Jesus. So we sing the little song to our kids. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. Jesus has authority over life, death, salvation, we see here, condemnation, he has authority over blindness, over lameness. We'll see in chapter 5. We see in verse 36 that Jesus has the power and authority to give eternal life. But he only does so to those who what? What does it say here? To those who believe in him. See, this is, again, this is the author John's purpose in writing. Chapter 20, verse 31, we've read this many times, we'll read this almost every week, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's his purpose. That's why he's writing this, this gospel, so that you would see and hear that you would believe. 
And remember, believe, it's not just this idea of like this acknowledge of your existence. This is, this is a, the type of belief that would be synonymous with trust, that you're trusting yourself to Jesus, that you put your place, that you put your life in the trust of Jesus' hands. But notice here that, that believing and not believing are not what John's contrasting. Did you notice that? You would think like what would, I think would be the more natural way of writing this you think John would write, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But that's not what it says. It says, whoever believes has eternal life, and whoever, what, does not obey the Son shall not see life. That's kind of interesting how that's set against each other. I think John's point here is that you cannot divorce obedience and belief. You, you just can't. To believe, you must also obey what Jesus has commanded. What we believe will ultimately come out in how we live. Always. What you believe, I'll be able to see it by how you live your life. True belief in Jesus is always accompanied with obedience to his word. This is what's called the lordship salvation argument. Some believe that you can make Jesus your Savior, and then at some point later in your life, you can make him your Lord. The problem with this argument is it's just not biblical. You just can't find this type of support in Scripture. When we place our faith in Jesus as Savior, we're also putting ourselves underneath his authority as Lord. You can't accept half of Jesus. You can't say, Jesus, wow, thank you so much for dying for me and giving me a new life, but I really don't want to obey you. To so the point of John 3 is that Jesus is greater. He is above all, and God the Father has given him authority over all. A question for you this morning is, have you surrendered all to him? Have you surrendered to his authority? If not, why? What, what's so hard? What don't you trust about him to why you just can't surrender that part of your life to Jesus? Why do you think you would do a better job than Jesus of holding your life together. Ask God right now to, to show you any area of your life where you are not submitting to his authority. It, it could be a relationship. Maybe you're, you're dating someone and you shouldn't be dating that one. Maybe, maybe it's just another realm of relationship that you're looking for affirmation from that person. Um, Approval of others. You know, isn't the approval of Christ sufficient for you? Why do you search it out in other relationships? So it could be in a relationship. It could be finances. Maybe you just don't trust that if you're a good giver that, you know, that, that, that you won't have joy in your life. Um, you know, there's so many promises in Scripture where, um, where you just surrender it all. Your time talent, treasure to Christ. 
Maybe it's with your words. Maybe you just haven't surrendered your words over to Christ. Where are you still functioning as your Lord? Where you think, you know, I just can't give this part over. I'm just not ready to surrender today. I encourage you, today's the day of surrender. You can't do both. You can't just have Jesus as your Savior, not your Lord. Surrender all. So this morning, confess of your pride maybe that you've had. Repent. Trust in the one who is above all and has been given all authority. As the band comes back up this morning to lead us in, in singing, I'm going to be in the back over here. If you just need to pray about anything, maybe you're just struggling in an area of your life, you just need prayer, I would love to pray with you. Maybe there's something going on in your family, you just, you just need somebody else to pray, I would love to be, um, be that for you. So um, I'll be in the back if anyone would like um, prayer this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, you are so kind this morning. Um, to give us eternal life, even though we have all walked away from you, we, we all uh, think we know what's best, and Lord, I pray that uh, this morning we would just all leave this room just surrendering everything over to you, that we would trust you, that your Father has handed all things to you, and Lord, may we do the same, may we just surrender and submit to you, may we trust you with every area of our life. It's always going to be better if we just stop running away and just surrender and come to you. So, Lord, deal with our hearts. Show us right now anything that we are just holding on to. Help us to confess and repent of those things and trust more in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.